We're glad you've joined us on Songs of Praise, an hour of musical reflection to encourage your heart.
We hope you're enjoying Songs of Praise. Here's some more inspirational music. i 
is my father's world and to my listening all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres this is my father's world I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees of skies and seas his hand the
of Praise continues with more inspirational music.
before us. And now as one, they testify, I am resolved to follow Jesus, your name
drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. salvation. All ye who hear now 
to his temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord who o'er all things so wondrously reigned. Shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustained. Hast thou not seen how thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordained? Raise to the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Praise to the Lord, O let all that is in me adore him. All that hath life and breath come now with praises before him. Amen, sound from his people again, gladly for I we adore him. You're listening to Songs of Praise. It's our desire to encourage and uplift your thoughts to our loving Creator God.
soul are you weary and troubled no light in the darkness you see there's light for a look at the savior and life more abundant and free Savior came from glory. 
Joy repeat. 
Join us again next time on Songs of Praise, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio, to enjoy more uplifting music. Welcome to 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading program. The book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen White, presents the parables of Jesus in a fresh light, showing their application to Christian living today. In this devotional classic, Ellen White explores the depths of the best-loved teachings of Jesus, offering a deeply spiritual understanding of the parables of Christ as they apply to our lives today. You'll enjoy the practical applications in a way that touches your heart. Listen now as Clive Nash reads. Continuing the chapter, This Man Receiveth Sinners. Their refusal to do this had proved their claims of piety to be false. Now many rejected Christ's reproof, yet to some his words brought conviction. Upon these, after Christ's ascension to heaven, the Holy Spirit came, and they united with his disciples in the very work outlined in the parable of the lost sheep. The Lost Piece of Silver After giving the parable of the lost sheep, Christ spoke another, saying, What woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? In the east, the houses of the poor usually consisted of but one room, often windowless and dark. The room was rarely swept, and a piece of money falling on the floor would be speedily covered by the dust and rubbish. In order that it might be found, even in the daytime, A candle must be lighted, and the house must be swept diligently. The wife's marriage portion usually consisted of pieces of money, which she carefully preserved as her most cherished possession to be transmitted to her own daughters. The loss of one of these pieces would be regarded as a serious calamity, and its recovery would cause great rejoicing in which the neighbouring women would readily share. When she hath found it, Christ said, She calleth her friends and her neighbours together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. This parable, like the preceding, sets forth the loss of something which with proper search may be recovered, and that with great joy. But the two parables 
represent different classes. The lost sheep knows that it is lost. It has left the shepherd and the flock, and it cannot recover itself. It represents those who realize that they are separated from God and who are in a cloud of perplexity, in humiliation and sorely tempted. The lost coin represents those who are lost in trespasses and sin, but who have no sense of their condition. They are estranged from God, but they know it not. Their souls are in peril, but they are unconscious and unconcerned. In this parable, Christ teaches that even those who are indifferent to the claims of God are the objects of his pitying love. They are to be sought for that they may be brought back to God. The sheep wandered away from the fold. It was lost in the wilderness or upon the mountains. The beast of silver was lost in the house. It was close at hand, yet it could be recovered only by diligent search. This parable is a lesson to families. In the household, there is often great carelessness concerning the souls of its members. Among their number may be one who is estranged from God, but how little anxiety is felt lest in the family relationship there be lost one of God's entrusted gifts. The coin, though lying among dust and rubbish, is a piece of silver still. Its owner seeks it because it is of value, so every soul, however degraded by sin, is in God's sight accounted precious. As the coin bears the image and superscription of the reigning power, so man at his creation bore the image and superscription of God, and though now marred and dim through the influence of sin, the traces of this inscription remain upon every soul. God desires to recover that soul and to retrace upon it his own image in righteousness and holiness. The woman in the parable searches diligently for her lost coin. She lights the candle and sweeps the house. She removes everything that might obstruct her search. Though only one piece is lost, she will not cease her efforts until that piece is found. So in the family, if one member is lost to God, every means should be used for his recovery. On the part of all the others, let there be diligent, careful self-examination. Let the life practice be investigated. See if there is not some mistake, some error in management, by which that soul is confirmed in impenitence. If there is in the family one child who is unconscious of his sinful state, parents should not rest. Let the candle be lighted. Search the word of God, and by its light let everything in the home be diligently examined to see why this child is lost. Let parents search their own hearts, examine their habits and practices. Children are the heritage of the Lord, and we are answerable to Him for our management of His property. There are fathers and mothers who long to labor in some foreign mission field. There are many who are active in Christian work outside the home, while their own children are strangers to the Saviour and His love. The work of winning their children for Christ, many parents trust to the minister or the Sabbath school teacher, but in doing this they are neglecting their own God-given responsibility. The education and training of their children to be Christians is the highest service that parents can render to God. It is a work that demands patient labor, a lifelong, diligent, and persevering effort. By neglect of this trust, we prove ourselves unfaithful stewards, 
no excuse for such neglect will be accepted by God. But those who have been guilty of neglect are not to despair. The woman whose coin was lost searched until she found it. So in love, faith and prayer, let parents work for their households until with joy they can come to God saying, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me. Isaiah 8 verse 18. This is true home missionary work, and it is as helpful to those who do it as to those for whom it is done. By our faithful interest for the home circle, we are fitting ourselves to work for the members of the Lord's family, with whom, if loyal to Christ, we shall live through eternal ages. For our brethren and sisters in Christ, we are to show the same interest that as members of one family we have for one another. And God designs that all this shall fit us to labour for still others. As our sympathies shall broaden and our love increase, we shall find everywhere a work to do. God's great human household embraces the world, and none of its members are to be passed by with neglect. Wherever we may be, there the lost piece of silver awaits our search. Are we seeking for it? Day by day we meet with those who take no interest in religious things. We talk with them, we visit among them. Do we show an interest in their spiritual welfare? Do we present Christ to them as the sin-pardoning Saviour? With their own hearts, warm with the love of Christ, do we tell them about that love? If we do not, how shall we meet these souls, lost, eternally lost, when with them we stand before the throne of God? The value of a soul, who can estimate? Would you know its worth? Go to Gethsemane, and there watch with Christ through those hours of anguish, when he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Look upon the Saviour uplifted on the cross. Hear that despairing cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mark 15, verse 34. Look upon the wounded head, the pierced side, the marred feet. Remember that Christ risked all. For our redemption, heaven itself was imperiled. At the foot of the cross, remembering that for one sinner Christ would have laid down his life, you may estimate the value of a soul. If you were in communion with Christ, you will place his estimate upon every human being. You will feel for others the same deep love that Christ has felt for you. Then you will be able to win, not drive, to attract, not repulse, those for whom he died. None would ever have been brought back to God if Christ had not made a personal effort for them. And it is by this personal work that we can rescue souls. When you see those who are going down to death, you will not rest in quiet indifference and ease. The greater their sin and the deeper their misery, the more earnest and tender will be your efforts for their recovery. You will discern the need of those who are suffering, who have been sinning against God and who are oppressed with a burden of guilt. Your heart will go out in sympathy for them and you will reach out to them a helping hand. In the arms of your faith and love, you will bring them to Christ. You will watch over and encourage them, and your sympathy and confidence will make it hard for them to fall from their steadfastness. In this work, all the angels of heaven are ready to cooperate. All the resources of heaven are at the command of those who are seeking to save the lost. 
Angels will help you to reach the most careless and the most hardened. And when one is brought back to God, all heaven is made glad. Seraphs and cherubs touch their golden harps and sing praises to God and the Lamb for their mercy and loving kindness to the children of men. Lost and is found. This chapter is based on Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. The parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son bring out in distinct lines God's pitying love for those who are straying from him. Although they have turned away from God, he does not leave them in their misery. He is full of kindness and tender pity toward all who are exposed to the temptations of the artful foe. In the parable of the prodigal son is presented the Lord's dealing with those who have once known the Father's love, but who have allowed the tempter to lead them captive at his will. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. This younger son had become weary of the restraint of his father's house. He thought that his liberty was restricted. His father's love and care for him were misinterpreted, and he determined to follow the dictates of his own inclination. The youth acknowledges no obligation to his father and expresses no gratitude, yet he claims the privilege of a child in sharing his father's goods. The inheritance that would fall to him at his father's death he desires to receive now. He is bent on present enjoyment and cares not for the future. Having obtained his patrimony, he goes into a far country away from his father's home. With money in plenty and liberty to do as he likes, he flatters himself that the desire of his heart is reached. There is no one to say, Do not do this, for it will be an injury to yourself, or do this because it is right. Evil companions help him to plunge ever deeper into sin, and he wastes his substance with riotous living. The Bible tells of men who, professing themselves to be wise, become fools, Romans 1.22. And this is the history of the young man of the parable. The wealth which he has selfishly claimed from his father, he squanders upon harlots. The treasure of his young manhood is wasted. The precious years of life, the strength of intellect, the bright visions of youth, the spiritual aspirations, all are consumed in the fires of lust. A great famine arises. He begins to be in want, and he joins himself to a citizen of the country who sends him into the field to feed swine. To a Jew, this was the most menial and degrading of employments. The youth who has boasted of his liberty now finds himself a slave. He is in the worst bondage, holden with the cords of his sins. Proverbs 5, verse 22.
Join us again next time as Clive Nash continues to read from the book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen G. White. Enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. In the early days of our church, young people had been at the very forefront of the work, and the average age of our pioneers was well below 35. Conference and even general conference presidents were in their 20s or 30s. It was a young church moving forward. Ellen White received her first vision at the age of 17. Jay and Andrews wrote his masterpiece, The History of the Sabbath, at the age of 29. John Harvey Kellogg was appointed director of the church's sanitarium at the age of 24. Vibrant, energetic, and open to change, the church was moving forward. But as the church expanded and grew, and as the average age increased, the need arose for a particular emphasis in ministry to young people. In 1879, in Hazleton, Michigan, two teenagers, Luther Warren and Henry Fenner, were walking down a dusty road and they were talking about the need for missionary work to be done by young people. Here, in the middle of nowhere, in the countryside, away from the cities, they knelt down on the dusty road and prayed that God would bless their plans, a prayer that would be answered over and over. The first missionary society started in Luther Warren's home and had three aims. Firstly, to plan missionary work. Secondly, to raise money for literature. And thirdly, to promote the cause of temperance. Twelve years later in Antigua, Wisconsin, another significant event took place. Mead Maguire made a proposal to the church that the Youth Society be allowed to use the building for its activities. This was discussed at the church board and there was some opposition, but one of the older members, Brother Connor, stood up and voiced his support. Sometimes the young people need the support of those older in order for their plans and activities to come to pass. If God has placed you in such a role, then may you be a support rather than a hindrance. In 1905, the Manual for Youth Work was published, and in 1907, in Gland, Switzerland, at the first general conference session outside of North America, the church voted to form a new department that was called the Seventh-day Adventist Young People's Society of Missionary Volunteers. M. E. Kern was asked to serve as the first director. And one of the new initiatives that was launched the next year was the Morning Watch, a daily devotional study guide. The society was mission focused and the youth Sabbath schools raised the money for the SS Pitcairn, a missionary boat that sailed to the South Pacific. Although it only sails for 10 years, it captured the imagination of young people around the world. Over the next few years and decades, societies would be formed in Korea, 
the Philippines, South America, Central America, Hungary, and China. The Youth Missionary Society would also be launched, which would be the precursor to the Pathfinder Department that we know today. The name of the department would change in 1972 to the Youth Department of Missionary Volunteers and then changed again in 1979 to the Adventist Youth Department and changed again in 2005 to Adventist Youth Ministries. The journey from that dirt road over 125 years ago has been a story of innovation and inspiration where we now have over 10 million young people in almost every country around the world. As a church, we must remember that our early identity was embedded in young people and putting young people at the center of the church will be key to fulfilling the gospel commission and finishing the work. Ellen White wrote many years ago, with such an army of workers as our youth, rightly trained, might furnish, how soon the message of a crucified, risen, and soon to come savior will be taken to the whole world. If you are older, then support the young people in your church. If you are a younger member, then don't let anyone despise your youth and rise to the challenge serving God wherever you might be. For more episodes in this series, visit lineagejourney.com.